If you would, turn to the book of Esther. We are continuing our series in the book of Esther. And if you would, look with me in chapter 2. If you'll notice on the handout that you got this morning, the um, order of service card, um, it says that I'll be going through uh, Esther 2, 1 through 11. I'm actually going to go all the way through to verse 18. Look with me in verse 1 as I read verse 1 and beyond. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her, and her, with, co- her co- with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with her seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to be the, to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shehagaz, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's unit, who had charge of the women, advised. 
Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to, the, to King Asherus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Being the father of two girls, I am well familiar with the story of Cinderella. As my girls were growing up, it seemed like a new Cinderella movie came out every year, and we saw them all. In a similar way, in similar ways, Esther's rise to power in the Persian Empire resembles the story of Cinderella. The, the prince in Cinderella is in search of his one true love. And so he holds this great ball where all the eligible women of the kingdom come to dance, come to show off their beauty and hopefully win his heart. It is a G-rated rags to riches story. And although there are similarities in Esther, Esther is a much darker and distressing tale. And this morning, the author, as we, will, as we have just read and we will look at, the author is, the author holds nothing back. He pulls no punches about what happened to this group of women and in particular, to Esther. And I trust the parents have prepared their children for this story because this is a dark story. It has intrigue, it has mystery, it has shock, and as we will see, this story has brutality. Chapter 1 introduces us to King Ahasuerus, who is the king of Persia, to the feast that he holds, um, to the queen he dethrones, because in this great feast that he is holding in his own honor, he calls his queen to parade before all his nobles. And many commentators would think that at the very least she is wearing a loose-fitting robe. If not, she is wearing nothing at all but a crown. And he wants to par parade her beauty before his nobles to make him look good in their eyes. And Queen Vashti, to her credit, although to a mystery of why she does this, we don't know her motive, but Queen Vashti simply says to the king, no, I am not going to parade myself in front of these men. And so the king who was Mary, who had been drinking for seven days, Mary with wine, he goes ballistic. He is enraged at Vashti. And so he, and he's in a, he's just in a dither. He just doesn't know what to do. And his, his nobles, and, and the king is not a, he's not a strong man. He's a, he's weak-minded. And so his, his nobles, um, in particular Memukan, just manipulate him and say, listen, make a decree because 
if anybody else in the kingdom hears about Vashti, all the women are never going to obey their husbands ever again. And it's going to make life miserable for the men in the kingdom. And we don't want life to be miserable for the men in the kingdom. We want life to be good for the men in the kingdom. And so make a decree that all the women in the kingdom must obey their husbands. So he just shows what an idiot he is even further. And they do. They make this decree and they banish Vashti. Vashti. That is, that is the first part. That is chapter one. And then in, in chapter two now, we are introduced to two of the three main characters in the story. We're introduced to Mordecai and we're introduced to Esther. Two Jews living in this capital city of Susa, particularly in the citadel, the area where the king's palace is. And we are introduced to what it means to live in this kingdom, what life is like in this kingdom, and what we are seeing throughout this, this intriguing story is Esther's, Esther's life, Mordecai's life, but more importantly, we are seeing who the main character is in this story, and that is God, because it is a story about God's faithfulness to his covenant people when they are faithless, when they, in their disobedience to him, God still remains faithful. The very reason the Jews are living in this Persian capital, the very reason why they are exiled here is because of their sin and disobedience. That in his judgment, God told them that if they worshiped other gods, if they disobeyed his commands, that the curse would come upon him, his judgment would come upon him, and that curse and that judgment would be exile. They would, they would lose their promised land, which is exactly what happened. And so the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes and he takes them into exile, destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, and ravages the country, kills many, and takes the best of the best back to Babylon with him. Years later, centuries later, someone else comes along, and his name is Darius, and he's king of Persia, and it is a vast kingdom, and he conquers Nebuchadnezzar, and now these people are exiled to Persia. So the Jews just go from, in a sense, bad to worse, further and further away from their homeland. And yet, God, in his kindness and in his mercy, moves favorably upon Darius's heart. And Darius allows some Jews to go back. He allows the Jews to go back to their promised land, which is still under the rule of Persia. But he allows them to go back to rebuild. And some Jews do go back. And that is where we are with Esther. Because before Esther... Years before, Ezra went back to start rebuilding. After Esther's story, we see Nehemiah going back. And Esther fits right in between. And that's where we are in the book of Esther. And, that, and this morning, as I have done the last couple of weeks, and will continue to do, what we'll look at again, because this is a story. This is history. This is a story. This is, this is not the kind of teaching we get in, in the epistles where, where Paul is writing and, and correcting and bringing truth to a local church where he's trying to set theology down and, and doctrine down. This is, this is a story. 
Not necessarily a bedtime story, unless you have the sanitized version of Esther from Sunday school. This, this, is, this is not a bedtime story. Now, no children, we're not reading about Esther right now. But this is a story, and it is, like I said, an intriguing one. And so what we'll go through this morning is, again, we'll look at the setting, we'll look at the story itself, and then we'll look at the surprising hidden providences of God in the story. So King Ahasuerus' party is over, Vashti is banished, some commentators believe she was executed, and the king's edict has gone out. Every wife must respect her husband. Every wife must do what he says. And yet, with all of this... All is not right in Ahasuerus' world. Three years have passed from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2. Three years. And in that three-year period, Ahasuerus has gone to war with Greece. He attacks Greece. And he gets soundly defeated. It is a humiliating defeat. And so, literally, he is back in his Persian capital, tail between his legs, and he is a mess. He's a defeated man. And, and as we begin in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we see that he is beginning to have some regrets about some of the decisions he has made, particularly with respect to Vashti. She was beautiful. Otherwise, he wouldn't have paraded her before all these people. She was his wife. She was his queen. And, and yet, she is nowhere now to be found. After all these things, when the anger of the king had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And, and he, he just, he remembered her. And that, that literally means, I mean, there is, there's this level of regret And defeat just seems to be in this man's life. So this, this, this idea of, of Vashti no longer being around is troubling to him. It is troubling. So now back in, in Persia after this disastrous campaign and he's licking his wounds, um, Vashti is gone. Now it's, okay, wh- what do we do next? Well, Memecom in in Chapter 1 tells us that what they should do in verse 19 is find another who is better than she. That's the setting here. All this has gone on. He's gone to war. He's been defeated. Vashti's gone. He's lonely. He's defeated. He's just miserable. And so they remember Memucon's decree. And his young men say, okay, here's what we do. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashley. And of course... This pleases the king. These young men are thinking, I know this is, this is what will help the king forget. Let's gather all the beautiful women, the young virgins in all of the pro- 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Let's search out all and find the one who can please the king. 
to make the king happy, the call goes out to every officer in every province to gather up all these young, beautiful virgins that will be better, one who will be better than Vashti. And of course, of course, this pleases the king immensely. I mean, young, beautiful virgins parading before him and providing him with sexual pleasure will make him forget all his troubles. That's what is happening here. My friends, this is life in a godless kingdom. This is life in a culture where pleasure is the highest good. It's the place where money, sex, and power are what everyone wants and will do whatever they can to get it. And it is the setting. It is in this setting that God's covenant people live. And it, and it is, as, as we will see, it's no easy task to remain faithful to God's holy commands. Now there's, there's a parallel. In many ways, in most ways, we live in a godless world. We live in a culture where pleasure is considered the highest good. People spend time rejoicing over their best meal or the newest outfit they bought or the cool car they just got or the amazing vacation they went on. Now, there's nothing wrong with rejoicing in those kinds of provisions that God has given us, but people often describe these things as their highest good. And it's in that setting as well where God's covenant people live. And it is in that setting as well where we can at times find it is no easy task to be faithful to obey God's holy commands. So that's the setting in this godless place. Now the story goes on in verse 5. We read that there's a Jew in Susa, the citadel, uh, Mordecai is there. The, The author introduces us to these main characters now. Now, the name Jew came from the tribe of Judah. When, when, the, when the Israelites went into exile, they were named Jews after the tribe of Judah, all who were taken by the Babylonians. And after, after King Darius um, takes over from Nebuchadnezzar, after he defeats Nebuchadnezzar, um, these Jews are taken to, to Persia. And, and as we see, Mordecai is, is living here. He's in Persia. He's in, he's in the capital city. He has a family history. His family history is that of a Benjamite. He is the, the, like one of the great, great grandsons of, of actually King Saul. And, and actually down in, 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 a, in a little bit, little bit later, we will see in Esther what importance that has. There's something, there's something amazing about that. Later in, in the story, we'll see that this history, the family history, um, 
plays a big role in the life of what's going on here. Now Esther is like a daughter to Mordecai. Esther's dad and mom have died. Um, Esther's dad was an uncle to Mordecai. Mordecai's an older man. And so Mordecai um, takes in Esther as his own daughter and raises her as his own. And, and here we see that Esther actually has a Jewish name, Hadassah. Um, she's the only one identified with the Jewish name. She's the only one identified with two names in the story. And Esther is being raised by her, her uncle who is obviously, I mean, he knows his Jewish heritage because he tells her when all the women are gathered up, what does he tell Hadassah, Esther, to do? He tells her not to reveal that she is Jewish. So she's not unaware. But both her and Mordecai don't have Jewish names in the book. They're not referred to with their Jewish names. Mordecai is a Persian name. And many commentators think it actually came from a Babylonian god, Marduk, that was worshipped. And Esther, her name either means star or is taken from a Persian god, Ishtar. And so you begin to see, okay, you've got these Jewish people who are Persian. Maybe more Persian. And so although Mordecai and Esther are Jewish, interestingly, their Persian names identify who they are. And, and one question that this story poses to us is how much have Mordecai and Esther been assimilated into the Persian culture? How much? And then in verse 8, verse 8 uh, and through 14, we, we see the story unfold of what happened. So when the king's order and his edict are proclaimed, when the many young women are gathered in Susa to the citadel, they go into the custody of Hegai. Esther is taken into the king's palace. She's put into his custody of all the women who, have, who she has, he has charge of. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And so Esther, as you read, this is the first time, and there's three times in this story that Esther wins favor. That's important. That the author would mention that three times. She wins favor of Haggai. She wins favor of all the people um, in verse 15. And then she wins the favor of the king. Now, Esther is young. And she is lovely to look at. And she has a beautiful figure. And along with all these young women, she is taken into the king's palace, into the harem. And, you know, in the story of Cinderella, when the prince gives a ball and all the young women ready themselves and they beautify themselves so that they can, they can show themselves off to the prince and that they hope their beauty will win him over so that they will be chosen to be queen. That, that I mean, that's... Oh, you hope, you hope that Cinderella will be chosen, that, that her beauty and her, her intelligence and her, her just joy on her face. Oh, yeah, that's, she's the one. And, and you, you root for Cinderella in the story. Here in Esther, these women have no choice. They have no choice. They, they're going to be beautified. 
but the king's eunuch will be the one to do it because he knows exactly what the king likes and exactly what the king wants. And as we get deeper into Esther, it is clear that it is no Cinderella story. Ahasuerus' kingdom was a bad place to live. Listen, yeah, young women were, were taken from their homes, from their families. And they were victims of a king's wicked and selfish lifestyle. But, but that's not all that's bad about this kingdom. Herodotus, who is a, an ancient historian, writes about this time. And he writes that during the same time that the women are being taken, young men, on the average of 500 young men a year, were taken from their homes and made into eunuchs to serve in the king's palace. And you have to understand what it means to be made into a eunuch. It is not a pleasant surgical procedure. That is the wickedness of this kingdom. That is why this is not a Cinderella story. But Esther, she is more beautiful and she is also charming and she is shrewd. And again, that's that theme we'll see throughout. And the author reminds us that, that Esther, Esther is, is winning favor. And then he, he goes on to let us know that, that Esther has, has done what Mordecai told her not to. Do not reveal that you are a Jew. Do not reveal that you are a Jew. Why the compromise? Why, why hide her heritage? Why keep her nationality, her kindred, in the dark? Mordecai is the one who instigates this, and, and Esther follows it. But the author never tells us why she does this. That's one of the mysteries of the book. And, and what is troubling is, is that not only does Esther hide her, her heritage and has, does Esther have a, a Persian name, but she dresses like a Persian. She eats Persian food. She doesn't keep Jewish dietary laws. She eats the food that the, the eunuch has, had given her. He provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and the seven young women who would attend to her. And so she's, she's not keeping the Sabbath. It appears that, that Esther is, is more Persian than she is Jewish. And so it's just, how, how does the story get here? Why does she compromise her upbringing, her religious upbringing? Why, why, does, why, does, why does Mordecai and and, and who is Mordecai in this? I mean, in verse 11, we see that Mordecai cares for her and he walks in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now understand, not just anybody gets to go near the harem. Not just anybody gets to go near the king's palace. This is inside the king's palace. This is in the citadel. This is where, and Mordecai is there and he's there regularly. So the question is, is he, is he a Persian official? That's some speculation, but the author doesn't tell us. Is he a eunuch? We never hear anything about a wife. 
But what we do know is he is close by. And he as well seems more Persian. It seems these two, Mordecai and Esther, are are living lives that have assimilated into the culture and not revealed their Jewishness, not yet. This seems countercultural to us because we know of the biblical heroes who were, when challenged in, in Babylon in particular, Daniel, who refused to stop praying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to eat the king's food and all were threatened with death. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a big oven. They were willing to die for their faith. They were willing to die to not hide their Jewishness, to not assimilate into the culture. And yet we see Mordecai and Esther doing that very thing. But then in verses 12 through 14, Esther's compromise gets even worse. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king after being 12 months under all of the beautification that she was under, uh, the young woman went into the king in this way. She was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz. Now, in, in other words, these young woman, women would go into the king And it was simply for his sexual pleasure. He would judge them by their performance. And if they were just okay, they went to the second harem. And they were called concubine. A harem is where all the women would live. A concubine is a woman who lived in the harem. And they would go to this second harem where they would live out the rest of their days. They would literally live like widows. They could never marry. They could never have families. They could never go back to their families. And they were fed. They were clothed. And if the king happened to remember their name, he might call them back in for another night. But most likely with all the women, he rarely remembered name. They were... They were there for the rest of their lives never to see their families again this is what Esther is about to face what is perplexing is that Mordecai seemed to be the one to put her in that position if she had revealed her identity at the very beginning her her nationality Persian law didn't allow her to marry a Persian king. She would have been kept from marrying the king and being put into the king's harem. Even more stunning is that Esther seems to be okay with all of this. She doesn't stand up for her faith. She doesn't refuse unholy food. And she willingly prepares to have sex with the king. I mean, Mordecai knows that Esther is going to have to make serious compromises to be a part of the king's harem. 
That seems crazy. And in all of this, the author gives no clue why. And it's not because Mordecai knows everything that's about to happen with Haman and the threat to the extermination of the Jews. Mordecai doesn't know any of this. The author knows it because he's writing this a century later or a couple of generations later. We know it because we're reading, but, but Mordecai's just a guy in the kingdom. He doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. So we can't give him credit like, oh yeah, well, he, he had this grand plan in place and he was scheming and, and they were willing to make these compromises to save the Jewish race. Mordecai wasn't thinking anything like that. He didn't know. It just seems crazy. Karen Job, in her commentary, says this. She says, The divinely inspired author chose not to reveal Esther's reaction to being taken into the harem or Mordecai's motives for commanding Esther to conceal her identity. It is natural to pass judgment on the two, whether positive or negative, but in doing so, we may miss an important point. The deliberate silence is part of the message. Regardless of their character, their motives, or their fidelity to God's law, the decisions Esther and Mordecai make move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises God made to his people long ago. Like, like the author, we, we know the end of the story. We see God's hand behind all the decisions, good or bad made. But Mordecai and Esther don't know the end of the story. And it is it, it perplexes us why they make compromises. And yet, we must honestly and we must humbly admit there are times that we make compromises in our lives. And that we should not elevate ourselves over Esther and Mordecai. It's kind of the Adam and Eve syndrome. Oh, if I was Adam, I would have never eaten that apple. Yes, you would have. (laughs) You probably would have had two. Brian Gregory, in his commentary, says this. He says, throughout history, people of faith have always found themselves living in the same tension, struggling with whether to be faithful to their core identity among the people of God or whether to capitulate to the pressures of cultural expectations and opportunities. Who am I? Am I a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, or am I just a part of the crowd? Will I adopt biblical standards on sexuality or will I adopt the messages of the culture around me? Will I be ethical or will I do what everyone else is doing in order to keep pace? Will I live boldly for God no matter what it costs me or will I hide my faith in embarrassment? Every Christian, like Esther, finds himself or herself in situations where one must choose between doing what is right or doing what is culturally acceptable, between acting with integrity or compromising in order to seize an opportunity, between living consistently out of one's identity in Christ or living for whatever is desirable according to the surrounding cultural climate. Every Christian faces these challenges. Every Christian faces these temptations to compromise. That's what we can learn from Esther. We're, we're, We're not above. Just because we know the end of the story, we're not above. 
And in verses 15 through 18, Esther's compromise is complete. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So this is four years after Vashti. That's how far apart this is. When she goes in, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. She pleased the king. Everything Esther does there is Right, and she wins the king's favor. She's made king, and king gives her a feast. Isn't it interesting? Vashti is lost on a feast, and now Esther is celebrated with a feast. Esther has pleased the king in a way Vashti did not. So that's the story. We have this setting of this kingdom. We have this story of what happens with Esther. And then There's the surprising hidden providences of God, which helps us understand the story a little better. Because we know the end of the story, we we can make some sense out of compromises that are made. We can look closely at what these characters in the story will never see or never know. God's hidden providence, but, but mysterious in how God's hidden providence works. And how it works, most of all, in compromised people. What, what I believe, what I think the Lord wants us to learn is that grace helps us understand the mystery of God's providence, particularly in compromised people. There is just providence after providence in this story that we see. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, the king's decree prepares the way for Esther to be queen. That's a hidden providence. In 5 through 7, Esther, being Jewish, will eventually be the saving grace of the Jewish people. That is God's hidden providence. In 5 through 7, God creating Esther to be beautiful is what places her in the king's harem. God's hidden providence. God giving Esther favor with the chief eunuch Haggai is instrumental in helping her become queen. God's hidden providence. God giving Esther favor with the king positions her in the future to save her people. God's hidden providence. All these providences stand behind God's ultimate plan to preserve and protect his covenant people. And my friends, compromise, sin, persecution, and evil do not stop God's redeeming purposes, even though we are saddened by the compromises we see and the choices that Esther and Mordecai have made. God is at work. God is at work in your lives when when evil seems to abound, when circumstances seem to go so bad, when there are difficulty, when you sin and you make mistakes, you, are, you have flaws and you have failures, God's providences are working behind the scenes in a redemptive way for His glory and for your good. 
Brian Gregory in his commentary said this, he said, the truth is that at the end of the day, it is very difficult to avoid the most obvious reading of the text, however morally disappointing it is. Esther was a Jewish girl who probably did not follow the dietary laws or observe the Sabbath and who certainly fornicated with a pagan king. The simple fact is that when she found herself in a hard place, she did not resist. She compromised. Perhaps, however, the trouble is not so much with the Bible as with our expectations of it. Scripture is not a chronicle of great moral examples, ethical heroes, or spiritual giants. Instead, it is the unfolding story of humanity's brokenness, one sinner at a time, and God's redemptive grace in the midst of it. Throughout Scripture, God's people morally compromise, ethically fall, and persistently sin. Yet, amazingly, God providentially and graciously continues to use them for His redemptive purposes. And the same is true for Esther. She is culpable for her failures. Her compromises cannot be excused, downplayed, or explained away. Yet, in the larger context of the book, this young girl's moral compromises are used by God to deliver His people from potential extermination. And God is the same today. He does not change. We do, but He does not change. And when we fail and we compromise, God is still providentially working in our lives because His ultimate purpose is to deliver His people to a day when we will stand before the Lord and Christ, because of his life and death and resurrection, his sacrifice on the cross, he will stand next to us and give an account for us saying, yes, they are mine. And they are cleansed. And they are holy. And we are God's children. God has always worked perfectly and providentially in his redemptive plan. Always for mankind. And most profoundly, he did it in the incarnation through his son, Jesus, who he not only took on our flesh, he took on our sin and he took on the cross to redeem us from the dark world we live in. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. You and I live in a dark world. We, we live in a godless kingdom. We live in a world that does not want to recognize God, that seeks to go out of its way to dismantle God and does everything to get us to go along with it. And the enticements and the compromises that are made are very subtle. And we must learn how to resist. Listen, God brought us out of the kingdom of darkness. And he brought us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And now we have a king who's not Satan, who's not the king of our world. We have the king who is kind and benevolent and good and gracious and faithful and forgiving. We have the king of kings ruling over us. That is good news for us. And even when there are times that we hide our faith, that we, as, as Max Stiles so wisely said, we duck, 
We are, we are ducking situations, knowing that if we v- reveal who we are, it might be costly. God, God is forgiving. Amen. How many times, like Esther or Mordecai, have we compromised because we're unwilling to suffer the consequences for doing what is right? How often do we duck? How often do we step aside from opportunities to stand for Christ, to share Christ? How often do we do that because we're, we're fearful of being called a bigot or a racist or a homophobe or a hater? And we, we make a compromise. God is, God is saying, look, I, I forgive you. My son died for you. And I have, I have filled you with my spirit. You're empowered. You don't have to compromise. You can say no to sin. You can say yes to God. And even though you live in this dark kingdom, you are not of this dark kingdom. And I am with you always. Every step of the way. Listen, it is tough at times to stand for Christ. If you've compromised, the gospel powerfully declares that that's not the end of your story. It is not the end of your story. The good news is that God in Christ can redeem your situation. He can redeem any situation. He's able to take every failure and every flaw and use it for his larger redemptive purpose. And if you fail, simply, my friends, repent. And if you struggle to compromise, cry out to God who promises to help you. Because God's grace, God's grace is bigger than any failure or flaw that you have. Any failure or flaw. Paul Paul tells us in Romans 6, he says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And he's doing that in the context of, listen, just because sin is big. Grace is bigger, but because grace is bigger doesn't mean you have carte blanche to go out and, and do whatever you want. No, 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 no. You don't compromise, but you see that grace is there. Grace is what is behind his providence. His providence is stronger than any of our com- compromises. And brothers and sisters, his grace is greater than any of our failures. And so as we read the story of Esther and we see this compromise and it, it just troubles us and it troubles me. The story of Esther is not over yet. And we will see God move in the most miraculous and amazing ways even through flawed and failed people. Father, thank you that you give us stories and that these stories are there to equip us and to train us and to remind us that we are yours and that you are at work in our lives. And as we, as we continue in this series, Lord, please glorify yourself and reveal your amazing grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.